right. Bennett to tight end left. Second and goal to go from the two. Toss sweep right for James White. Cuts it up to the right arm. Cuts it upfield. Driving forward. It's diving to the goal line. It's still a touchdown. touchdown. And a title for the Patriots. It. I can't believe it. They have completed the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Led by the greatest quarterback. Look at Brady. In Super Bowl So welcome back to Action Replay Extra Time. Uh, the boys had an interesting conversation with you and Mackenzie regarding the Chapel Wednesday airplane crash and also their subsequent uh, sponsorship with Qatar Airways. But myself and Billy Keenan and Danny Quinn will now be talking about Super Bowl 51 and the opening weekend of the Six Nations. Before we get on to Ireland's loss in the Six Nations, England's last minute win and Wales' somewhat forgettable win against Italy, we'll uh, firstly briefly talk about the Super Bowl Sunday and New England's Patriots, the biggest comeback ever in Super Bowl history, 25 points down, uh, halfway through the third quarter at the first scoring, 31 successive points on five drives. It was unbelievable stuff. Really, uh, usually, I think in these situations you go to an expert first to talk about <laughs> dissecting situations, but I think it's refreshing to talk to someone who is basically watches first full game of NFL. What was your rookie novice take on the on the whole spectacle and, and yeah, situation? I was going to say it was my first Super Bowl, but it was my first start to finish hmm. NFL game. Uh, I really enjoyed it, although I don't think I was able to appreciate, even though I, soccer, Gaelic and rugby comebacks, I don't think I was able to appreciate the magnitude of that comeback. Um, I thought it was, it was terrific, I really enjoyed the spectacle, um, Lady Gaga was great. Um, was but, she? Yeah, yeah, she's alright actually, yeah. yeah. Uh, she has some great, great songs. But no, I, I really enjoyed it and I particularly haven't written an article about uh, Matt Ryan and Julio Jones before for the game. I, I really enjoyed um, seeing Matt Ryan using Julio Jones as, as a decoy mm. and taking so much pressure off other runners that he, he was able to utilise. But um, I, just, I just remember thinking that champions are champions and there's a pedigree in sports and that's that's what uh, that's what came out from the Patriots at the end before uh, we go on to the pedigree. Patriots what did you make of Julio Jones the first time you've seen him I can't he he made one or two great catches uh, saved Matt Ryan once or twice and uh, they could have they could have come back or could have come back to Matt Ryan and, and looked poorly on him but I was just more interested in seeing these um, opportunistic moments from the Falcons that intercept I thought was a great read and then their opening touchdown I thought was fantastic as well but I was really impressed with their defence they went in with four rookies in their defensive side and I was really impressed with how they shut down and put pressure on the Patriots early on and just knocked likes of Brady off his game very early on and it, that's why it took them as long as it did to get back and, and get a grip to themselves Daddy do you know how many receptions Julio had you four receptions for 87 yards. Which I found shocking because I, I just think it was the two particular catches. Obviously, one which was like mo- one of the most spectacular catches I've ever seen in the, the NFL. The one, like when he just like. The one that was around. with Matt Ryan rolling out in the fourth and it was just placed above. I don't know how the ball wasn't tipped. It was. Oh, yes, yes. Literally just finger. There's just inches above his fingers outstretched and Julio somehow managed to catch it, like jumping up and then get his both feet. That's in. the one I was, I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And that I'm, was a, a big moment of the game. And when I saw that, I thought, no, 
Yeah. They're still in this. They've still got a chance. They don't give a, a damn about history and they're really going for this. And I thought that was a huge momentum sweep. But then they looked deflated one or two plays afterwards and the Patriots came right back. Mm. See, that's yeah. like Julio Jones. And if you look at, like, Billy, it was not really actually fair to, like, give, like, use that game as an example because Bill Belichick just had two people at Julio at all times. Yeah. Sometimes even had, like, a second safety, like, covering them as well to, like, make sure nothing was deep. But the fact he was used as a decoy so effectively to open up the run game for Devonta Freeman like I thought it was excellent game management up until the second half really like you know uh, Freeman had a great game yeah. like he was averaging over he was around well, 7 yards a carry like which is which, 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 average, which like, just brings me to the point like so the Patriots have won two of the last three Super Bowls and while yesterday's comeback was absolutely unbelievable they've also benefited by two of the biggest coaching brain fats I think in, in Super Bowl history, the, the first one in, in the Seahawks game, they run, they choose the pass when they're two yards out and they've got Marshawn Lynch rather than yeah, yeah, exactly, rather and they throw a pass, gets intercepted, and Patriots win the game. And then with after that Jones catch, rather than running the ball with a guy who's averaging over seven yards a carry, they go empty backfield. So there's not even a chance that they look like they might run. And they, they pass it, and they, you know, pass and completion. Then there's a sack, then there's a holding call, and they're third and 33. It's and ridiculous. Like, if nothing else, just run the ball to, like, kill a bit of the clock. But even if they just kneel the ball three times. That's what I was thinking as well. They would have like, made the Patriots really, use their timeouts, yeah. and they would have just kicked the field goal. And then, then you have 11. Then you got to get, you got to make two scores. Two scores in three minutes, which you wouldn't be able to do. Like, you'd have to get your score. With no timeouts. With no timeouts as well, yeah, yeah. You'd have to get your score within, like, a minute. And then kick onside, hope you win the onside kick, and then like just tr- toss in a hail mary, like which not going to happen. Like it was just terrible. It was terrible just baffling. Game management. Jack, terrible. you mentioned those holding tackles. I thought the rules of American football, coming from someone who watches a lot of rugby, are unfathomable. Mm. Holding and then they're being like blindsided by massive, incredible hits with no regard for anybody's safety in some of these hits. Oh, and that's, then, that, that's uh, the mantra of yeah, NFL: is and, just and, no regard for safety. And then this behemoth holds another player for approximately a tenth of a second yeah. and a flag is thrown down yeah. and they're given a first down and a ten yard gain Yeah, I I couldn't believe it and the fact that it happened two or three times in a row in, in a row I, that's what I mean about pedigree and pressure and some guys just not being um, able to handle it I yeah it's absolutely pressure because and then it, not only that with the holding calls but you could see it on the defence as well because in the first half the reason why the Falcons part of the reason anyway but they were so good obviously their offence is actually well but they they put pressure on Brady and they sacked him a couple of times I think no, number n- number 97 Brady Jarrett got three sacks in that game yeah I, I don't know his name Brady Jarrett yeah but yeah. I mean I like he gave it was a breakout performance from and we saw one last year for um for the uh, the Panthers, um, Connie Ely got two sacks in interception against Peyton Manning. Like yeah. it's unusual mm. the way like Super Bowl like creates gems like that that you've never heard of before. Yeah. But like the Patriots, they I think they like they were so obsessed with like stopping Vic Beasley, who led the league in sacks with fifteen and a half. Like he's an uh, exterior rusher, like he rushes around the edge. They were so obsessed with stopping that they kind of allowed the interior pressure, which let uh, Jarrett get the three sacks because like he's not been that disruptive pass rusher this season at all Jarrett hasn't I also like um, yes it was a little bit stop start and there were plenty of sacks and Brady the ball didn't go to hand with Brady a, a number of times it was a little bit under characteristic performance 
But I really like that, even though it stops there in those aspects, that there were no huge uh, head collisions or concussions or players having to be removed from the field on a stretcher. Mm. Uh, people who don't watch a lot of NFL look at it as a, you know, particularly barbaric in terms of every player is concussed. There's no player safety. Uh, uh, it, it, there's no... Um, protection for these players it's just rolling them out and then you get a new back to every season I was really um, impressed that there were no huge head collisions or stretchers or neck braces and I thought it. I thought as an occasion for a sport that gets a lot of grief about concussion particularly that it, it was a it was a good indicator it was a good um, not doing this justice it was a good display for the sport mm. particularly in a final In the last two seasons alone there's been serious serious improvement in the level of like looking after head injuries in American football because head injuries have been huge like there's a lot of people that have been diagnosed with CTE and that have come out about it like uh, and this this season there's only two two big big occasions when it went kind of wavered over like Cam Newton getting hit in the head in the first game against the Denver Broncos he was allowed he was like checked for concussion and then allowed back on the field six or seven times yeah I mean like the they're unchecked head headshots like it wasn't fair against Newton but like the fact they allowed him to play on despite the fact he was clearly concussed it's just unusual and um, the Dolphins uh, quarterback I can't remember his name the, he's the reserve quarterback uh, this happened in the playoffs he got or sorry it could have been last week in regular season he got an absolutely ferocious hit like he wasn't steady on his feet at all but like he's just taken off yeah. the field for one play and brought back in so like apart from them two instances player safety has been a paramount I, I just thought it was a really season. good exhibition yeah. for the game that it's, gets a lot of grief oh it, 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 yeah. but it is an ex- it's an exception as well because I mean it is a great piece uh, I think it was written by both actually Bill Simmons and Malcolm Gladwell and it's just analysing there was particularly a Luke Keekley hit and he, he went in uh, got his head in the wrong place got his head head to head and uh, he burst into tears crying and not because of an emotion it's because he, when you get hit that hard sometimes you, you lose actual physical and emotional control over over you know some of your, your brain and, and like he got you know he was concussed and he sat randomly crying and it was yeah. nothing to do with what he could control or he was sad he got concussed he was just literally uncontrollable emotions yeah. but, and, and there's another huge issue as well which is uh, a Addic- uh, a painkiller addiction um, which has been well documented on a couple different things and there's a great piece in Bleach Report actually last week that examined anonymous players it just you know as soon as one guy gets injured and needs surgery these teammates are texting him straight away looking for painkillers and there's no greater one than that with Alex Mack and the Falcons uh, he played, played with a broken leg and it wasn't disclosed until after the game so he actually trained all week on the Super Bowl yeah. the Super Bowl yeah he yeah. was the fella. He like he's around three hundred pounds. He used the fella just like snapping the ball back to Mac Ryan. So like he has to snap the ball, like get up, get in a position to like block off another three hundred plus pound man. Yeah, and is he's it, done that in a broken. Which means leg. he bends. He has to bend over every single game, and he's playing on every snap as well. Yeah. Because was it his fibula or is that actually in an arm? No, it's his f- femur. No, there is no way it could have been his femur. No, I think it. Is your you fibula can't. is your knee? I don't leg, know. It just said femur, back yeah. your leg. Um, no, fibula is in your arm. Um, no, no, it's it, definitely his leg. Yeah, it couldn't have been his femur. There's no, no it's way. It's definitely his leg. Like, I think it's just. I think it was more exaggerated. Like I think but, it's, yeah. it's just a fracture or something fibula. like that. Fibula fracture. Fib- there we go. Yeah, I heard that in the game. That tibia and fibula. It's, it's your shin. It's, it's yeah. in around your shin. He was yeah. playing on a. Uh, but I mean, still, nonetheless, I mean, it's still like it's. 
it's broken, like, it's a broken bone. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, like there's several cases that last year. Andrew looked in the Indianapolis Colts quarterback, who's actually the highest paid player in the league. He played a lot of last season with cracked ribs, mm. and that like every team has to give a medical report each week of like players that didn't train for various reasons, and it wasn't said once on the injury report that Luke had like broken ribs or like cracked ribs yeah. or something like that, and the Colts went unpunished for it. And uh, Richard Turner of the Seattle Seahawks, he had an MCL, I don't th- don't know if it was a tear or a sprain, but um, the NFL were looking into taking a draft pick off the Seahawks because they didn't ex- disclose that mm. under injury report. Well, yeah, Luck was lucky he didn't end up in a body bag last oh, season. Paul, um, Paul Kimmage does a, has written a very good piece on the so-called um, bravery culture in rugby and uh, how it's, it's poppycock when players are injecting themselves uh, pre post match and during half times for painkillers Stephen Ferris talks about it in his book Stephen Ferris jumps over that it's not even worth thinking about when he mentioned in his autobiography that he wanted to reach this game so badly that he was willing to inject himself with something to, to play through mm. an obvious injury that should have kept him out whereas Paul Kimmage looked at it from that point of view that they, they, it's a performance enhancing drug and you shouldn't be allowed to do that I mean, is is there a better example though than Ferris of why not to do this? Because it's it's sacrificing your body for short term gain, being able to play. I mean, what was the reason that Stephen Ferris retired? Um, a hideous ankle injury. Injuries. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like it's like he's it's completely sacrificing short term, and he ends up taking years off his career because he's his body yeah. can't hold up. So it's, Jack, it's just you, you and I spoke to Stephen Ferris ahead of the Chicago game, mm. and to be honest, I, I would have been slightly interested to see what state his ankle was at the top of that flight of stairs that he needed to get open because months afterwards he's still tweeting about a huge swollen ankle he can't fly without his ankle swelling up it's just it's terms of quality of life and again we'll move on to rugby now but I thought that was it was still a, it was a really good exhibition for mm. NFL where player safety is such a, a huge issue and, and I think it just went down really well well before we we'll stop talking briefly about broken bones and broken ankles but we'll move on to broken hearts and uh, Alan's trip to Murrayfield on the weekend 27-22 uh, 21-5 at half time um, really not really a, a subpar first half performance by Alan I think the second half performance is what the Irish team that we really expected to see um, Billy you've been wanting to get this off your chest for a couple of days what was your biggest gripe with Alan's performance on the weekend I've just been sad for the last few days Um he, Jerry Thornley I think made the, the point that Ireland still can't uh, go into a tournament as favourites hmm. without without imploding rugby is such um, an emotional game and I feel like Ireland did think they were going to win hmm. regardless and Scotland were pumped up and when a side going in complacent goes in against a side who are supercharged that's the result hmm. and with a player like Stuart Hogg who I've been critical of in the past I'm not sure he's the finish article but when you give him the space and the confidence to use those, you know, those great aspects that he does have, he is going to tear you apart. Mm. And that's what the, that's what happened. I thought Scotland were hugely emotionally pumped for that game. I felt like Ireland were off the pace. And by off the pace, I mean in terms of their attention to detail. Um, Peter O'Mahony's name is being mentioned as a, a huge line-out opera line out for it and yes he was injured for that game and he couldn't have taken part but uh, you know Devon Toner and Ian Henderson now suddenly look like 
uh, pushovers in the lineout, and we've relied on Devon Toner hugely in the past for for the lineout. So I just think it was Scotland's ability to go from the start that really, really hurt Ireland. Mm. Um, yeah. But I, I do think that liner thing, and I do think people jump at that as well, saying, Peter, why would Peter Martini? He's a good liner, jump at that's who we could have. Like, Alan lost two lineouts, 12, completed 12 out of 14. The two they did lose, Scotland took the ball and still made about 40, 50 metres before yeah. scoring. Um, the Hugh Jones one, I mean, we've seen it, it's a split <coughs> moment of indecision between Paddy Jackson and Ian Henderson and a lack of communication um, and the ball goes to Hugh Jones and he does very well to get it to Hogg and I mean Hogg burns Keith Ells from there and sells Rob Carney Rob Carney's still looking for the pass but I mean it's it's such fine margins and I, I do understand the the criticism of the line there and particularly on Alex Dunbar's try because as Shane Horgan said on RTE if you see a number 12 in the middle of a line there, you have to assume something's up here yeah. you know yeah. I mean they're just, they're just a number 12 the inside centre just doesn't stand in every line so you yeah. have to assume that close to the line as well and they, in, in fairness to Scotland they caught Allen on the hop I mean they caught them off guard and they executed it brilliantly yeah. but the, the performance for me was just I think we relied a lot and actually I shouldn't say we I mean it wasn't like I was out there but <laughs> Allen relied a lot on CJ Stander Sean O'Brien and like Jamie Heath that triumvirate and hoping Ian Henderson but I th- would really carry the ball over I, th- but I think that's because they were told that you're innately better than the person you're going to be up against mm. I mean Hamish Watson uh, a small guy makes way too many yards than he should do for Edinburgh was put in that starting team Josh Strauss 33 uh, big beard everyone thinks he's a, a Shabal-esque player but give him this um, you know John Barkley off the bench. John Barkley off the bench, and then um, Ryan Wilson. I mean, Ryan Wilson has been consistently picked by Vern Cotter and has yet to really impress mm. as a back rower. And I think CJ Sander and Sean O'Brien were just told that they were better, and they assumed that they would. And to be honest, I think um, the Scottish back row wanted it more. Mm. I think Hamish Watson had a point to prove, and he was given a start. And he really wanted to make a point, and I think he's going to be picked again. I just don't end. think Scotland were given enough credit in the hindsight of their defensive performance. I mean, you mentioned Hamish Watson. Hamish Watson made 16 tackles. Johnny Gray made 28. Yeah, Johnny Gray hasn't missed a tackle this year. Except the, for the first game. If, the commentators, yeah. the commentators cursed. He missed two uh, on the weekend. But, I mean, he still, he was exceptional. He carried the most carries and most tackles on Scotland. And they, and they really, every time, and you see, it really exposed almost... I wouldn't say a fallibility because you can't make one game of CJ Stander. I mean, it's the first game I've seen where he really didn't have this just monstrous mm. impact. Yeah. He, he was turned over a couple of times. He was really shot down. But I, I really have to believe that that was a huge part of of Scotland's game plan. And something. And there's one thing in... There's a big difference between game planning uh, for CJ Stander. I think Mike Tyson had a great quote. He was like, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah. So there's one thing in game planning for CJ standing going to stop him and actually stopping him. But yeah. in fairness, Scotland really had two guys on him every time, and they really nullified that part of of Ireland's threat. Um, when we came out after the second half, really a much different performance. Um, what did you think? Would you think it was the hairdryer treatment, or do you think it was just adjustments that maybe Joe Smith made that really led to that second half comeback? I think they just started from nil again, mm. and they went into they came out at halftime saying it's a completely new different half and we have a chance to restart. Um, the worrying part is that Ireland weren't able to do that in the first half in the breaks play that there were, that they needed a full breakaway to to get back into their system, to get back into th- this confidence and their mindset of, of what their game plan was. 
Um, Rory Best had one or two bad throws at the beginning of the game and I feel like that uh, maybe might have affected his confidence in terms of bringing the rest of the players on. Still had a huge game in and around the Rook, made mm-hmm. lots of carries, tackled to Kingdom Come. But uh, big Jack McGrath fan and I just wondered where he was other than the scrum in terms of normal Jack McGrath. Tyke Furlong carried a lot but going into the game we, we looked at Henderson and Henderson came back Henderson scored our try mm-hmm. and I thought that was really it really didn't do much else though didn't no. do a huge amount else uh, Olsen Land came off the bench and didn't, very very didn't really look like standards. he was at the races mm. <sighs> looking at our bench a player like Josh van der Fleer is someone who I want to see starting for Ireland and I want to see him starting ahead of any of the players who are currently in the back row I think Ireland need a player like Dunica Ryan in that sense who is going to do nothing other than what you already know we Mm -hmm. look at CJ Stander we look at Sean O'Brien and we look at Jamie Heaslip saying what they can do you put them on the field for 80 minutes they could make that line break they could make a huge tackle they've got the capability to punch through the line Mm -hmm. you know 100% what you're going to get for Josh van der Flyer he's going to tackle everything to kingdom come he's a light player in the line out he's quick off the mark and he's actually able to take the ball with some ferocity Mm -hmm. and he's great in the the rook as well exactly he's a very good pilfer of the ball you know 100% what you're it's a guarantee our back row at the moment isn't a guarantee if you shut down CJ Sander I think just 100% emotional intensity is what you're going to get mm-hmm. and we brought that I thought Sean O'Brien was very good but for a coach like Joe Schmidt who wants so intrinsic who knows intrinsically what he wants having that back row with so much potential um, I, I think Josh Van der Fleer needs to be brought in um, Jamie Heaslip's coming for a lot of criticism I don't think Jamie Heaslip deserved the criticism I thought it was a pack effort and then we've focused a lot on the pack particularly with Ireland a, ba- a pack on the back foot means that uh, Paddy Jackson's on the back foot immediately and he made that made Conor Murray and Paddy Jackson seem mm. average I know I know you want Josh Van der Fleurian but you do realise the maths of the situation there's, there's three spots for four players that yeah, means someone's going to have to make way and um, I think exactly like that you know what you're going to get from Josh Van der Fleur. Uh, Josh van der Fleer I want, I want a name Billy <laughs> to, to miss out on yeah um, I'd pick Sean O'Brien Sean really I'd pick Sean O'Brien uh, I think CJ Stander's going to punch a hole I think Jamie Heaslip is a much better player for having CJ Stander on his shoulder than he is with Sean O'Brien okay. and I think Josh van der Fleer you're going to get a guaranteed performance or a guaranteed percentage on terms of lineouts, or in terms of carries or in terms of tackles from him and I think when you're uh, 10 points down and you want a player to make an impact Sean O'Brien's going to make the impact he's going to bring it on whereas Josh van der Fleer I don't think I'm communicating this very well Josh van der Fleer is going to no, there's nothing about the communication I, no, don't, I just don't agree I, I with feel the like, point I, I feel like jo- I feel like Sean O'Brien is going to make an impact and I feel like Josh van der Fleer is going to support a consistent growing of a lead or Sean O'Brien's going to Sean O'Brien's going to change it up Josh van der Fleer is going to maintain a defensive line the thing is there right you need someone to get the ball from the rook I mean like you say Australia have to have two of them with David Pocock and Michael Hooper Ireland with Stander O'Brien and Heaslip the best player doing that is Jamie Heaslip and like coming in and getting a dirty ball from the rooks I think we do need a van der Fleer 
like to come in to do that dirty work because like um, O'Brien and Stander are ball carriers first and foremost he slips the best of the dirty work I'd actually I'd drop he slip of the tree if I was to bring in Van der Fleer and put Stander in at A but I, I get your point Billy like you but you're then you're then you're swapping like for like uh, look I, I think there's there's definitely there's a lot of similarities between Stander's game and and Sean O'Brien's game and I think it's it's a really hard situation where it's I look at it like TJ Perinara and Bowden Barrett in New Zealand last yeah. year you had two guys who in any other team in the world they would have gone straight into starting 10 I mean Bowden Barrett just had oh sorry two years ago now uh, Bowden Barrett has Dan Carter ahead of him Yeah. Uh, TJ Perinara has Aaron Smith ahead of him it's just it's a numbers game you don't you just can't fit these guys in um, with uh, Standard and O'Brien I, I get the point and get the logic of playing both of them you've got two massive ball carriers that can really get over your line and especially in an age where the fences are so stout and so hard to break you've got two guys that can really break over the line and consistently probably chew off more metres than more or less maybe any other ball carrier in Europe not named Billy Vanapola yeah. so it's, it's it's there's a thing there and then also you've got Jamie Heaslip who's two games removed from a world player of the year nomination yeah no, so no. I mean it's, it's a hard call I mean the thing with, with Van der Fleer that he brings he brings real pace um, and real deceptive acceleration yeah uh, and I shouldn't say deceptive actually it's pretty blatant um, <laughs> and he tackles ferociously in the Ireland New Zealand game in Chicago he, he came off the bench with Jordy Murphy and he was Ireland's top tackler um, yeah like and Jordy Murphy had a stormer that day yeah while he yeah, was on the field did. and we're not even talking about him now in the Six Nations it's, yeah no it, it's, it's great depth but I wouldn't be so quick to let's just tear down the whole system after one loss I just think Scotland were really really on form they really yeah. were game plan the they, they really, really came out and played well and they and they still almost did the most Scottish thing of all time which was absolutely bothered <laughs> but like look at their like defensive line speed in the first half like it was absolutely blinding how fast they were up like just getting tackles behind the gain line but you have to remember as well, they made 90 tackles coming into half time. Like, you know, mm. that does have an effect on you because it's like Ireland had so much more possession. I think like we had 60% of the possession going into the half time. And that wears you down and wears you down and wears you down. So, like, you, you're there thinking Ireland could come back because, like, the Scots could not keep up that defensive intensity. Well, Donegal O'Callan so made the point that it's. Sorry, Danny. Donegal O'Callan made the point that it's, 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 no, it's no bother to a player to tackle a one out runner. You know, mm. and for the in the difference of of confidence, at Scotland were taking a lot more confidence in stopping Ireland than they were being tired from stopping mm. Ireland. Mm. And Jack, I I agree with you now. I think I <laughs> I got ahead of myself with Josh van der Fleer, but I just no, like the, I, it's, I, yeah, it's perfect that you can make the argument. You yeah, know, definitely. Argument and Sean just... O'Brien was fantastic at the weekend, first game back, and he he's doing it. He's doing it far too many times now for it to just be a fluke. Mm. I just I like Josh van der Fleer, and I'm trying to fit him into this Ireland team. I'm Danny made the point about Pocock and Hooper after World Cup. That combination didn't work at all in the Rugby Championship against England. Pocock and Hooper didn't combine. Pocock looked incredible in that World Cup and incredibly frustrated after it. Mm. I don't know if you agree with that, Jack. It did not work at all. Making way for a player like Sean McMahon, Lepetti Tamani to balance it up and now we've got uh, Pocock away and there's, there is now a void to be filled and I just think that the way the Scots played and the, the lead that they gave us, I don't think Sean O'Brien and CJ Stander and Jamie Heaslip on the back foot is a combination that that's going to regain a game for us. Having said that, we almost did it. 
Yeah, look, there's there's definitely an argument there for Van der Flip, but there's a strong counter argument. But that's what good teams are. I yeah. mean, I mean, even if you look at that last November series, Aaron Smith comes back, plays the first game in Chicago, and then you know plays badly, holds on <laughs> to his spot for the next one, and then is dropped for TJ Perinara after that. So yeah. he got two chances and he was gone. It's just it's just really high level competition and it yep. happens at this level um, and something that we thought was going to be high level competition and it was I suppose it was by the end of it but the start it was a very weird game to watch was England-France yeah um, I was actually watching this game from work and uh, I was watching with a colleague of mine and he just turned to me and, and said France play really boring rugby don't they and I was looking at him are you watching the same game I am mm-hmm. That's how many enough. how many headlines have you read how many times have you her people giving out about France this is a completely different French team mm-hmm. I feel uh, like Toulon Guinovas is telling his squad that they're superstars mm-hmm. after years of Philippe Saint-André maybe telling them that they're not mm-hmm. and they went out and played like it uh, apparently Louis Piccomo has shed the kilos his rear end still look pretty big to me mm-hmm. and Jack like you said earlier he made more yards than the entire England pack put together Yeah, um, I've Really I was wondering like, where you're going to go with that yeah. talking about his rear end. I, was, <laughs> I, I definitely didn't recall. No, he's just shed, shedding the kilos. I really like Baptiste Saran. I think he is a French number nine uh, that France have been missing. And it's mad to think that when Camille Lopez, who played well as well, his club partner is Morgan Parra. Mm. Going into a French team with erratic selections, you'd think that a combination maybe in the halfbacks would be would be a good thing. But Guinoves, credit to him, has picked Baptiste Saran. Um, to start and I think he, he controlled the game very well I just couldn't get over every time Vakatawa got the ball how the commentary mentioned he wasn't even playing regular rugby oh, they, it was day like to day go-to. Like they loved mentioning they he, just loved mentioning that he's and outstanding he's so exciting to watch yeah a good strong French name Vakatawa <laughs> but uh, more French than Noah Makatiaki yeah Nakataki. and Scott's betting um, I think Scott's betting has, has been very good for <laughs> yeah, France but I also think it was just down to uh, England not really looking like themselves. Yeah. Um, yes, they looked aggressive, but um, and and for that performance to come from Twickenham, I was just really impressed with France. Mm. I was really impressed with them, and I and I actually watched the game against the All Blacks of their last November before the game, and I was just delighted to see uh, players like Louis Piccolo. Um, Johan Maestri and Remy Lamara staying on the field for the full game mm-hmm. because I was really disappointed when those guys went off against the All Blacks not, uh, Johan Maestri in particular uh, I think Guinoves is doing a good job with France mm-hmm. um, picking players who are on form I mean Danny do you know who Kevin Gordon is? Never heard of him No he's played for La Rochelle who are La Rochelle? Well they're actually top of the fr- top 14 at the moment uh, Weenie Antonio uh, is his fitness has improved immensely mm-hmm. I mean he's 195 centimetres tall he's 137 kilos and he played 60 minutes of international rugby uh, I think it's just incredible I think Guinoves for the moment has the support of the players and uh, you know I, I think they're going to take some scalps in the Six Nations Who who do you think next I mean they're versing Scotland um, in in the start of France and this, there's already talks of Scotland beat Ireland like, oh, Scotland can win yeah. the championship I don't know no. if where they go that far no. but it is a very no. promising Scotland team but it, I mean this is it's I think Scot- this is two teams that have very much even over the last five years have been pretty evenly matched It could be a very good game Scotland yeah. versus France uh, even just looking at those centres uh, just focusing on France again Remy Lamara and Gail Foucault Gail Foucault is fourth choice 
at the moment. Uh, well, obviously, Fofana was there. Fofana, Chavancy yeah. was, was brought in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bastro was Bastro's then brought in. Easy. Jan David was injured. Mm-hmm. And um, Fiku was quite a disappointment on the weekend. Fiku was a little bit disappointing. We were looking at that. Where's this Especially magic going to come from? The Connacht game where he was immense. But uh, so looking at that centre partnership against Hugh Jones and Alex Dunbar. Hugh Jones has actually just signed a contract to come back to Glasgow. Mm-hmm. I don't know where he's going to play in Glasgow because of the, the quality they have in that team but if he's starting for the national side hopefully he'll start for Glasgow um, I wasn't sure about the, just this, this English team Joe Longsbury and Courtney Laws in that second row seems very Stuart Lancaster-esque How so? It's, I think that was just a linchpin of his of his generation of his time with England and I don't think they're I don't think together they're Eddie Jones players and maybe that's because we were spoiled with the performances of Itoje and Cruz mm-hmm. but I just thought that was even though they're terrific players and they could be starting for any other international side on their day not having Maro Itoje even though he was on the field in the second row with Cruz was deflating for the team and yeah. for Eddie Jones mm. okay, and you can see the argument why you play Maro Itoje at six because there is no more athletic second rower in the world than Maro Itoje no. there's no one more custom made to make that transition to six than he is but it just didn't it wasn't effective and what I no. really thought was England's problem was they've relied I mean the thing with Eddie Jones is he's really made a lot of really remarkable accomplishments over mm. his time um, one of them obviously being taking a team that was dumped out humiliated yeah. at their own home World Cup go undefeated uh, second is a guy Dylan Hartley brings him in from absolutely being ostracised to captain yep. but one of the other ones is Billy, Billy Vinopola making a guy who was an impact player and you really put impact in quotation marks yeah. because he was just you know that 20 minute off the bench and he turned him into an 80 minute player who was a World Player of the Year nomination yeah. and the thing with England watching them last year particularly was Billy Vinopola is such a focal point of their attack everything goes through him they rely on him to make meters and get over the game line and it sets up everything and really and it Really, it's a cliche, and make, but it does give them front foot and go forward ball, and that triggers right through to their back line. So when they lose a player like him, they need to make up those meters that he brings, which is usually, I mean, the guy is routinely getting over 70, 80, 90 meters a game. Yeah. So you tried that with Nathan Hughes. You can see what they have him in there. He's supposed to replicate what Billy brings. Didn't quite deliver the same type of performance. Um, didn't really have a bad game, but not to that level no. of Vinopola. And I, I just think that they didn't, we mentioned that before was pick and had more metres than the entire England forward pack so you need to supplement those metres and whether that's true Nathan Hughes alone you rely on him or it's, yeah. a, it's a culmination of different players but once again similar to Scotland and Ireland France were good defensively and didn't allow them but I just thought England were just real flat I just didn't really get very, that sense very flat and um, just talking about I've counter productive points about the bench the substitution of Benteo yeah Terrific mm-hmm. timing, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, James, James Haslam, Haslam as well came on like on. a man possessed, and Eddie he's Johnson been like that for England win. since day yeah. one with Eddie Jones. Mm-hmm. But looking back to the Jamie the, George as well, Jamie George as well on form. Should he be starting? Yes, ahead yeah. of Dylan Hartley. Although Hartley sets the tone. Just looking at that second row, I think if you make one change from that bench in the side row, if you take out Courtney Laws, put a Toje into the second row. And let James Haskell start. Oh, I think you yeah. have a complete different dynamic, and I don't mean in terms of a pilfer or a carrier or a lineout. I mean in terms of aggression mm-hmm. and in terms of confidence. And Jack, like you said, Maro Toje is 
a hugely athletic for a second row, mm. but he's just he's a good back rower. Yeah. But when he's in that second row, everything he does is is multiplied because you're not expecting a player in that position to do the things he does. You put Courtney Laws onto the bench, re- uh, release him at 20 minutes ago, and tell him, "I want you to, I want you to break someone's ribs." Which he's got no. Which problem doing. he has no With problem doing. The uh, then you know, moving to Manny Harrison as as the sole back row rower on the bench, who, who's a feisty player himself. And he's versatile. He can play across yeah. the back row. Yeah. So I would, I think Eddie Jones is going to be looking. He'll definitely try and bring James Haskell back in mm-hmm. because that's something that England were were lacking. Off of Damien Shuley, who is for France. He's always just been in this Philippe Saint-André team. What mm. has he been doing? He's a great line-out forward. But what has he really been doing? But with Gordon and Picamos in particular, uh, that French back row just looked fantastic. And I think um, bringing in Haskell, that'll make that England back row look fantastic. Yeah, I, I was surprised they didn't go at it in the first place. I know mm. Haskell's coming off injury, so yeah. maybe fitness is a concern there. But I'm gonna, I would have thought that the most natural replacement for Chris Robshaw would have been Tom Wood. Um, and now and then you would have just played Haskell on the open yeah. side as per usual, and then obviously have Nathan Hughes in at number eight, with, and you try and maybe form this new partnership, break up that Cruz and Itoje partnership, yeah. and maybe just see if Joe Longbury can supplement. And Joe Longbury has been playing very good rugby this yeah, season. Yeah, he's so. fantastic in the November internationals. Yeah, and he's Longbury been playing very good. good for Wasps as well. So I, I can see why they might go at that point. Um, the other one which is interesting concerns the back three um, which is Mike Brown, Johnny May and Elliot Daly as a makeshift winger. Um, Jack Knoll has been pretty good for Exeter over the last number of And for of England. Months. Yeah, and for yeah, England as well. Um, yeah. I must add. Uh, do, you, do you think he finds a way back in or do you think he keeps Daly uh, on the wing? Jack Knoll? Yeah. Because um, I'm assuming Knoll elsewhere in that back line you, you assume Young's, Farrell, Ford and Joseph are all pretty much locked in. Yeah, and I think uh, Jones pre-match said that he he feels badly when he gives a cap to a player, and after the game he he realizes I don't see this player Samisi in my world in my World Cup squad. Mm. So looking at that, um, I think uh, Youngs, Ford, Joseph, and Farrell is you know those teams that he those players that he does see at that next World Cup. After that, I think it's very interchangeable in terms of bringing back that aggression. I think Jack Knoll will do that in spades. Mm. Um, the step off both of his feet is ferocious and I mean ferocious he comes back into the contact and off his wing with just huge uh, tenacity and pace that Elliot Daly doesn't do he, he, he glides but Jack Noel really brings the intensity back in field and particularly running off 10 or 12 he can crash it up Johnny May electrically quick his try against the All Blacks in their famous victory was pure pace um, but I think Jack Noel is going to come in. Having said that, Eddie Jones has been a little bit loyal to Elliot Daly since he's given them those first caps, and that would that would kind of lead me to believe that he sees Elliot Daly as one of those players who's going to have a number of caps ahead of the, the World Cup in Japan. And even Anthony Watson to come in there as well. Exactly, like he's an absolutely outstanding winger. Like the competition there is unreal. I could see perhaps Farrell moving to ten and Ford being dropped to put in uh, Daly into the midfield. But you think so? Possibly. Uh, yeah. That's one option, uh, but Ben Teo is making a very strong case for being a starter for England as well. Although I think he appreciates think his, his impact ability, is just better off the bench yeah. because like he comes on, runs straight line, runs over people. Yeah. I think that's we really talked for an hour point. We talked about um, France and how Guy Noves is, in, is instilling this confidence. Uh, Jean Marc Dusson, I think, set France back two years mm. towards the end of that game. Um, 
Camille Lopez, um, Baptiste Seren were doing good stuff with the kicking, and Scott Spedding also has a huge boot. Mm. Uh, to Howitzer. How, yeah, and then France are given a penalty and they need to find touch. And Jean Marc Dusson, with time left on the clock, not a whole amount of time, but time, takes the ball in a rush. And the second he took that ball up, I knew he wasn't going to make touch. And he didn't. And it's it was. Your spidey senses were tingling. My spidey senses were tingling. I could sense in the force that this guy, the way he even held the ball, there's no way it was going in. And I think. Uh, Guinovas has to smash that attitude out of those kind of players that would not have happened in a Joe Schmidt team um, look in the French bend Laurent Goujon uh, looks dejected and practically unfit for international rugby he can make um, an impact here and there he's not a player to um, stop the ship from sinking um, in that regard uh, Rabat Slimani's try was, was a, a good day for props as well oh, Going back great day for props. props great day for props and soft hands and soft hands uh, looking at the final game I suppose um, Danny and I talked early, late last week and I actually called an Italian victory oh you did not I did it uh, looked, I let it looked my, likely to have fun I let my patriotism get in the way I let what I wanted to happen um, yeah it looked very likely at mm. half time I mean it wasn't great to watch it wasn't great at all to watch it looked likely there was huge passages of play like huge spances of time between rooks but Nothing was happening in between them. Mm. I don't even know where the time went. Uh, it was kind of hard to, to to wrap your head around. Wales just looked like they were going at fifty percent. They very, really looked like that. Very puzzling. And the worst part about that is that they still won. Yeah. With at fifty percent. Um. Did you get to see the game? The game, Jack. I did. Yeah. I did. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Watched it. it Watched it. Whistle to whistle. End to mm. end. And it was. Uh. I mean, it definitely had great moments of play. Uh. There's there's no doubt about it. The the uh. In the lead up to the gory try, it wasn't the try itself, but I mean, there was a great Italian passage of play where Sergio Parise, um, great interlinking with Carlo Canna and yeah. really good positive play. And Parise is just, I mean, still at this age, at 33, he's still just one of the best number eights in the world. I mean, I the think guy so. is just yeah. phenomenal. Um, but Italy rely on him so heavily. And, and the George North try was great as well. I mean, yeah. But I think the, the the biggest turning point for me, and there's a lot that we can discuss in the forwards as well, um, particularly with that Sam Warburton and Justin Tepurik finally getting in number seven and Warburton at six. Um, but the, uh, the 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 biggest thing for me was just Wales. Just the, the Sam Davies coming on at half time just changed everything. And, yeah. and Dan Bigger has been a, he's a great player. Um, but there's a lot of kick tennis as well in the first half and I just didn't really why engage in a team like that with Italy why not run at them and, and yeah. really counter attack and really try and test them um, because you do have good backs I mean you've 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 got Scott Williams there and you Jonathan Davies um, Lee Halfpenny I'm, I'm not really convinced I think he suffers similarly to Rob Carney and the fact that he's just one of those players to me that just looks like injuries has gotten him yeah um, and particularly with his legs his speed and his counter attack just doesn't look like it's really there yeah um, but I think Sam Davies was just so pivotal and he played a key part in three tries and I just, I just find it hard especially if you do have half penny there maybe while he might not be the counter attack he was he still has an unbelievable reliable boot yeah um, so if, if he's going to kick your goals I just I, I, I just can't see why you leave Sam Davies out because he, he's such a creator and you've seen it on that George North try at the end he just yeah. I mean granted George North had, had to still run 60 metres and step inside and he does what George North does but he, uh, it was Davies that just realised the space and executed it. I think Liam Williams on that far wing was uh, 
it was a good a good pick as well. Yeah. Um, and many but he people was think, quiet. He didn't get yeah, enough ball. He, didn't, didn't know he wasn't given enough ball. But um, something that I really noticed about that game was that Italy went into the game with huge confidence, with mm. huge positivity. Conor O'Shea speaks incredibly well about the importance of Italian rugby, regardless of whether he's the coach or not. Um, I felt like the referee, and I really did feel like this, was making a point to remind Italy that they're Italy. Mm. And that I... How so? I, very harsh penalties. Um, the way he immediately dealt with Sergio Parise, uh, I thought was um, very patronising. Parise gets very animated. He does. And he's he a passionate had to, man. He had to, he's a passionate man. And he has to be... Um, but I felt he he himself immediately felt heart done by. And I think the Welsh were given too much respect by the referee as well. Just in terms of a certain few calls, uh, Italy had a nice bit of uh, strength in the scrum early on. And I feel like he didn't, he didn't reward the positive display that Italy had in the scrum either. And just J.P. Doyle's... Um, Interactions with Sergio Parise, who was very animated. He did the same with Reese Webb, though. To be fair, he yeah, did. He did. He, he did, did back at Reese Webb to stop pestering him, and yeah, and he, he. I think he penalised. I don't. I'm not sure if he penalised Reese Webb. He penalised Sergio Parise, but um, Sergio Parise is the Italian captain. Yeah, and it's all well and good telling a player who shouldn't even be talking to the referee. Yeah, to and Reese Webb, Webb is a scrum half as well, so yeah. it's, all, it's naturally within the it's in the to, job description almost. To speak to the, the Italian captain like that, um, I thought was just a little bit unfair and I, I'm not sure if if it affected the game so much, but it, it definitely stunted Italy and I, I wasn't happy with that and I, I will go back it again and I, I'll on our next pod see how I feel, but immediately I felt like it just wasn't right. It just JP's Doyle's uh, handling of the game just wasn't right. But at the same time, he was probably bored out of his mind by the game. So uh, Rod Newton definitely was. Rod well, knew, on we talk about times. we talk about slow games in the Six Nations and it being maybe boring rugby in the past, but it always comes back to a hard an arm wrestle between two passionate teams. I think he blew into the microphone two or three times just out of pure exhaustion and boredom there was one point he was just like if you're having trouble sleeping put this game on yeah, uh, and I do think there's a, there's a part of it where this is already last spin with the Six Nations yeah. this is the last and TV3 have the rights next year I think he's just especially that Italy game I mean we'll see the Ireland game just, is obviously he's firing from the hip just reminds him of his failure to you know get the rights for next year God, I he took it out in the Italian face too. every time. I think he was vindicated watching that yeah. Italian game. I mean, the Scottish Irish game was, uh, I mean, that was great, entertaining rugby. France and, and England towards the end, and it, but it, the Six Nations as a whole was just a reminder, and it's just unfortunate because there's only five game weekends of the year. Yeah, but it's the most interesting of tense. rugby. It's the most intense. I mean, it's just the most, and for all the strides the Champions Cup has made, it, nothing just gets people interested and international engaged rugby. in rugby, like yeah. international yeah. rugby. And it's just, it's, it's it, rugby is, and you don't see it in any other sport because, like, when international football comes around, it's just like this collective, ugh, another international, yeah. another international break. It's like a break from the Premier League, which yeah. is non-stop yeah. drama for what. 38 game weeks of the year so I mean and basketball I mean you look at sport like basketball international is just like ugh, the US is going to just roll everyone most international sport is just not really entertaining Yeah. Um, but rugby is just it's it's the pinnacle and the be all so on one point I was really glad the Six Nations was back because it really uh, it's it's 
it's better than the rugby championship, I think, just because yeah. of the tradition and just the Completely. atmosphere that around the games, and then the intensity, and also the fact that every game counts. If uh, you yeah. lose, Ireland comes in as Grand Slam contenders, yeah. and immediately after eighty minutes, those dreams are dashed, and their whole aspirations from here on in are completely altered. So it's uh, it's it's great to have the Six Nations back. Um, it's great to have you boys back. Great yeah, to have, it's great, great to, to be back. back. It's great to be really back. great to be back. <laughs> we hope you're glad having us back. Uh, we'll, uh, yeah, we hope uh, you enjoyed us back, and um, we'll be back in. Hopefully, we'll have another one out next week, um, or if not before the end of this week, we might uh, get another podcast up um, before the next round of Six Nations and all the sport. But if not, uh, for more sporting action, you can listen to Action Replay on DCFM dot com at 6 p.m. on Thursday where Danny will be in the studio to give you more raring hot takes and maybe some more spinal analogies I'm, I'm the local chiro- chiropractor now <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh, yeah as always you can uh, subscribe and listen on iTunes so uh, thank you do that there thanks very much thank you 61 years and counting George who can they do it uh, I have never felt more confident in a vital game for Ireland that they can do it for, for three reasons. And the coach, the coach and the coach. Because Kidney has turned around a team that was awful in the World Cup, awful in Six Nations, awful in the autumn, and he's turned them into this. They will win. Phillips, drop it goal. Stephen Jones, this for the lead. He's got it. He's got it. And Ireland have five minutes to find their way back. Well, at least they've got that for five minutes, but you can't argue with the quality of that last goal from Wales and the build-up to it and the pressure they exerted. Clock ticks to three minutes. Ireland continue to pick and go. It doesn't get more intense than this moment. Peter Stringer urging his pack, Marcus Horn in particular, to get up and defend, they've almost nothing left to give, Horan for David Wallace and Wallace is helped by Paddy Wallace and Ireland in position this must be it, this must be it for Ronan O'Gara drop it goal, Grand Slam at stage he's got it would you Time for more. Well, Jones was good. That was even better. Fantastic. But we've still got two minutes to go. No penalties now. Penalty is there. And will they take it? Of course they will. 79 minutes and 23 seconds. And Wales have a penalty to win the Triple Crown and break Irish hearts. Oh, I don't believe it. The quality of his kicking so far under pressure. The clock ticks on, which means this will be the final act, because when Stephen Jones kicks, we'll be in the 80th minute, and that will be that. It's come down to this. All the dreams and all the hopes and all the aspirations of this Irish Grand Slam effort on Stephen Jones making or not making this kick. Has it? Has not made it? Touchdown! 